You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Michael Horn has been a thought leader in education from the day Clay Christensen took him on as a co-author of Disrupting Class. After the book came out in 2008, Horn went on to lead the education practice at the Christensen Institute for a dozen years. Four years ago, after writing a paper called Disrupting College with Christensen, Michael shifted the majority of his time to advising higher education leaders. Horn's new book, Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life, informs college choosers as well as college leaders. Let's listen in as Tom talks to Michael about his book and more. Michael Horn, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's uh, such a treat to have you on. It's been too long. Yeah, I know. I was I was thinking to myself, there were years there where we were traveling weekly uh, together, getting to do work uh, in the various state capitals and with various education right. schools and providers. And we don't get to do it nearly enough these days. It's good to catch up. Um, I want to go take take you in the Wayback Machine um, to high school. Where'd you go to high school? I went to Walt Whitman High School in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, public school uh, that uh, has a lot of characteristics of a private school, if I'm honest. Um, why did you pick Yale or why did Yale pick you? Yeah, so I picked Yale because, frankly, the energy of the campus uh, was just infectious when I went there over a summer visit. And, like, I, I fell in love with it, tried to say I didn't want to go over and over again because I thought New Haven was – my mom had brainwashed me into thinking New Haven was this place where I would uh, w- would suffer terrible bodily harm. Uh, but I just – over and over again, couldn't uh, couldn't get it out of my head and convinced myself that the programs around music that at the time I really wanted uh, would, would be good. Why did Yale pick me? I have no idea. Uh, I think it, you know, I, 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 I like to think that the well-rounded nature that I presented uh, was certainly part of it and that embodied uh, a lot of what Yale wants to see, which is not just academic excellence, but also people who are going to be uh, members of the community uh, volunteering in a lot of different extracurriculars and, and creating a more robust campus life. What was the musical interest? Yeah, I, so I, I, I guess I am, uh, but barely play anymore outside of Disney tunes, uh, a pianist. Uh, and I am both jazz and classically trained. And I wanted to make sure that Yale would have enough of a jazz program. Uh, I knew it had great classical teachers and, and legacy and so forth, but I was less sure about the jazz opportunities and uh, I got satisfied enough and then did almost nothing oh, with it after freshman that's year. That's interesting. I didn't know that. What job did you want a Harvard MBA to do for you? Yeah, so it's interesting. Before I wrote this new book, Choosing College, I would have told you it was to transition out of the public policy world and into the business world. That's why I went to business school. It was interesting when you looked at my actual decisions and what I actually did, not what I said, but what I actually did. It was clear that I hired Harvard Business School to get into my best business school. Uh, I had been originally thinking I would apply to joint MBA, JD programs, so business and law school. Uh, Did not get into Harvard Law School, got into the Harvard Business School. And I remember visiting with my parents and we walked around the campus. And for anyone who's been there, it's gorgeous. It's uh, the the rest of the colleges and schools at Harvard call it Versailles because they're envious of it. And... uh, my dad looked at me and said, you'd be crazy not to go here. And and within one week of enrolling, I forgot about law school altogether, realizing I had no desire to practice law and just totally immersed myself uh, in the business school experience. But it was really 
it was really much more, you know, get into a great school for its own sake than uh, a, a concrete image of what I actually would do. Is that where you met Clay Christensen? That is. I uh, took his class second year, and uh, at the end of uh, a class in November, he, uh, he cavalierly, as Clay sometimes does, uh, said, anyone interested in writing a book with me on public K-12 education, stop by. Were you that kid sitting in the front row? <laughs> I was uh, the kid in the second row, I think. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, I still remember where I sat in the class, uh, as does he, which is, which is fascinating. But, you know, I, it's funny, Tom, I didn't realize, you know, when I signed on, I didn't realize Clay had attempted to write what became Disrupting Class like four times earlier. And I, I think you were involved in some of those conversations, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Uh, and I just had no knowledge or uh, sense of that. It, it's an interesting question. If I had, would I have signed on still to do it? Uh, but But it obviously worked out. Uh, I remembered some of those early drafts. They were a little bit of a mess. And you were super helpful in uh, pushing us and cleaning them up, uh, which was great. I mean, it was, you know, disrupting classes like this process where we dug deep. I think we had some kernels of really good ideas. And then folks like you and and a few others really dug in and, and, and didn't just sort of cursely read it and say, yeah, it's okay, you know, change one thing. Like, I remember you were reading drafts and then you'd send me an email uh, and say, going out for a walk on the beach, I'll be back with more. And it was like line by line feedback with deep conceptual ideas that really, I think, pushed us to, to, to not settle for sort of a surface level treatment of public schools, which made it, I think, a lot better. It, it must have been an amazing experience for you. You ended up spending several years working on that with Clay, right? Yeah, it was so. I, I guess two years. <laughs> I mean, you know, Clay. He 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 would say, "Oh, the book will take us six months to write. We'll publish it, and then I'll find you whatever job you actually want." And two years later, the book actually came out. And then I remember actually meeting you in person for the first time in uh, Colorado at a convening uh, that our friend Giselle Huff uh, had helped organize. And I remember being just terrified out of my mind, uh, trying to figure out how to participate with all these luminaries in 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 attendance, uh, but it over time became obviously my life and, and career, the, the focus on trying to allow every single child to build passion and fulfill potential. You had the, the good fortune to spend, a, was it 12 or 14 years at Christensen Institute? More, more than yeah, a it dozen. Was, it was roughly, I guess the Institute now, we founded it in May, 2007. So I guess it's now 12 years old, uh, a little over. I was there for just about a decade uh, before I stepped out full time. Uh, and, you know, I still get to spend right. a day a week with them. What, which is what would you say is your big takeaway from a dozen years there? Yeah, you know, I, I think the big takeaway is that Clay's body of innovation theory has a lot of important things to say on a variety of societal problems, not just education. Uh, and it's able to draw, to your point, counterintuitive conclusions that just a lot of people take for granted or don't see in a variety of places. And then if you really want to have impact, it's not enough to just write that first draft or that first book or that first article, but you got to actually really immerse yourself with the players in the field so you can help them see uh, the possibilities and so forth. And then I think it, the, the last thing I guess I would say is it's also then occasionally important to step back outside of that echo chamber to say, okay, are we being fully honest 
uh, with what is likely to work or not likely to work based on what we're seeing, rather than just getting caught up in the excitement. It's the interesting, Michael, that I, I like a lot of people, I think, just now take for granted um, disruptive innovation theory. It's just part of my mental model and how I think about the world and just a signal of how important Clay's work has been to uh, to many of us. Yeah, and I, you know, it's interesting also, right? Like there's people who've actually read the work and, and built it in. And right. then there's like the second layer, right? Who have taken disruptive innovation right. as a buzz phrase and not actually understood its meaning and distorted it, I think, in unfortunate ways where they call things disruptive that, you know, ultimately disruptive innovation is it's really a, it's really game theory with technology and, and it's more a theory of competition rather than success per se. And uh, I think it's been distorted in some unfortunate ways by that second rung who just use it cavalierly or a third rung who just hate the notion, even though it so clearly exists in all parts so of our society. After a dozen years uh, working in K-12, why the shift to higher ed where you've spent most of your time and attention for the last four years? Yeah. So I, I, I should say, you know, I do, still do spend time in K-12 education. It's probably 20 or 30% of my time now, whereas higher education is probably 70%. The, uh, the shift, I think, started happening gradually around 2010, 2011. Uh, Clay and I wrote with Louis Soros at the Center for American Progress, uh, a, a, a big piece called Disrupting College. And a lot of the ideas in Disrupting Class people in higher ed were constantly applying in, in, in the realm of higher education. And so part of it was we naturally got pulled into it. And there's a lot more disruption, I would argue, occurring in higher ed than K-12. And so it was a more natural for a lot of the ideas. The other thing that happened was uh, folks like Gunnar Councilman persuaded me that ultimately K-12 to some degree is a dependent system on higher ed. In other words, what we think of as a quality high school is one that gets its students into quote unquote good colleges. And if college is aiming at the wrong things or, or, or premised on the wrong things, then that's going to screw up our definition of what a good high school is, which then in turn screws up our definition of what a good middle school is and elementary school and so forth. And so if you really want to have impact, I think my initial work thought was like, we'll go to the earliest point possible and then work your way up. Uh, I've been persuaded that you actually have to change the higher ed system itself, maybe first, and uh, at least in an interdependent way with K-12, and, and you've got to change the linkages to employers as well. Uh, that's, I think it's really true, and it, it's interesting that, that that observation is exacerbated by trends that we started 30 years ago. I know I'm... I was uh, 20 years ago an advocate for the all kids college ready um, mantra, which is equity focused, but ended up having the unintended consequence of focusing all of high school efforts on college prep. And it, it uh, really ended up destroying um, both the good and the bad of CTE and just focused the whole engine on uh, the college selection process. So I think it exacerbated the higher ed is driving the bus um, syndrome. So I think there's some truth to the, um, we have to reform, redesign, reimagine higher ed to have a full opportunity 
uh, to transform uh, secondary school experience. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, Tom. I, I think you're right on everything you just said there. Two thoughts. One, uh, it's important, by the way, that all of us are able to see things that we wrote or said or pushed for or whatever, right, and be able to revise as we as new facts and come to the ground. I think far too many thinkers uh, in education and leaders do that enough that that they're we, we should be more interested all of us in in the truth rather than yeah. being right we, that that's, and it's so, hard in politics we yeah. don't let people revise relearn totally. uh reconsider but it's it's clearly as dynamic as things are in education business uh and global affairs if we're not all reconsidering what we what we used to think we're all in trouble yeah, I totally agree. And I, I just, it's its an observation that my colleague at the Christensen Institute recently made about Clay, that he's more interested in, in the truth than being right. And so he adapts and evolves his, his own research and thinking and theories over time. And I just think it's something that uh, we all ought to do. In terms of what we've seen in college and, and high school, I think your, your observation is correct as well. Something, you know, I've gotten, I guess, a little my my new book choosing college has only been out a few weeks but uh if there's if there's any hammering on it i think some people have hammered on our statement that college is not the right place for all students you know right away after high school by any means and and i think people have uh been upset to to read that in some cases but it's just so evidently true that at least as it currently constructed colleges are not serving well huge numbers of students we're not built to do so. And so it's not that, you know, college doesn't make sense for some students some of the time. It's that we need to have colleges innovating and, and redesigning themselves and creating new thoughtful programs. And we also need to create a multiplicity of pathways that aren't prejudiced by your state in life, but more by your passion and what you want to do. It's clearly the case for the changes in all the context variables. College got more expensive. Some got less relevant. The business world has changed a lot. And so it, it does seem clear now that um, college is not the right place for everybody. Um, one thing that you make really clear in your book is that you shouldn't go without a clear sense of purpose. And you, you definitely shouldn't go and rack up debt without a clear sense of purpose. So I, I, Let's. Um, I, I want to dive into that. You do a really remarkable job of laying out the reasons that people go to college, and you, you dissect that in a way that I don't think anyone else has. But before we do that, um, I'm curious why you decided to write a book for college seekers more than college operators. Yeah, it's a great question. It wasn't where we started either. Um, we started with the hypothesis at the Christensen Institute that because students were coming to college with many different jobs to be done in, in, a, in our language or, you know, uh, many different reasons, effectively, that colleges in an effort to be all things to all people were catering for, for these very different whys that were pulling against each other. And so therefore, they were suboptimal for all sort of one size fits none operations. Uh, and uh, it was also driving up a lot of overhead costs that was increasing cost of college, uh, dealing with the complexity of these different pathways that you needed to have uh, because you were serving students with all these different whys. 
So we started from a very supply side, if you will, mentality, which is where a lot of my work has been. And frankly, as we did the research, so for the jobs to be done work for, for your listeners, you basically do really deep interviews with students who have recently made a choice uh, around, around switching to something. So choosing college in this case, and not to ask them why they made the decision that they did, but basically to reconstruct a mini documentary of the choices that they made and the events that impacted it. And from that, you diagnose these whys. And, and what was fascinating was just the stories themselves were so interesting and different from the New York Times reading crowd uh, that you often hear. And uh, the jobs were not at all what we expected. And out of it, we said, we think we have some advice and guardrails that we ought to write to parents and students directly to help them, not just with the college choice, but lifelong learning decisions you know, that occur after high school period. And so that sort of became the orientation. And then me still being so ensconced uh, in, in working with colleges and universities and the education system more generally, felt like we also had to do something for what does this mean for colleges and universities. So obviously the last part of the book, the last couple of chapters uh, is aimed at them. And, and I would say that's where it gets a little wonkier. Not all students will uh, want to read that part of the book. But I think it's also where I'm at, you know, some, in some ways, I think some of my best writing uh, appeared or and best prescriptions, I think, uh, that I've done, period, appeared in that part because we were able to see things just from such a different vantage point from, from the demand side, if you will, uh, that's very different from how most uh, colleges and universities view their markets, if you will. Um, could you just quickly outline the jobs to be done? Like, wh why do people go to college? What are the different reasons? Yeah, so the five ones we found, the first one is uh, help me get into my best school. So the quick summary of that is these are students who are all about getting in uh, for the best as they define the best. So certain communities that might align with US News and World Report rankings, other communities it might be the best within a hundred mile radius of where you live. Uh, but they're all about sort of that classic college experience, brick and mortar campus, reinvent themselves with new people, sort of the college dream that we've sold. Uh, the second one is help me do what's expected of me. So this is the flip side of the help me get into my best school, but these students are doing to uh, going to college to satisfy someone else in their life, their parents, their friends, their community, their educators, uh, mentors, et cetera. Uh, turns out to be a terrible reason, by the way, to go to a four-year school uh, because you're super ap apathetic and when adversity hits, you drop out or transfer pretty quickly. Uh, the third one, help me get away. So these are students who are running from something, uh, you know, abusive stepfather, bad family, bad hometown, whatever it is, but not necessarily towards something. Uh, another really bad reason for four-year school, uh, the fourth one, help me step it up, is a super interesting one. These are students who they like part of their lives, but they also look at something like the job that they hold and they say, this isn't who I am. And there's some event about to hit them and they say, I've got to step it up. It's now or never. Uh, like I can do better than this. I can be better. And so they go back to school to get skills and certifications to improve their lot in life. And then the last one uh, is what we're calling help me extend myself. So these are students who uh, are in an okay place in life uh, and they sort of look around them and they say, I'm going to make the time and money to invest in myself for further education uh, because I've always wanted to be more, learn more, challenge myself in some way. And so these are students who are much more going back 
in some ways for learning's sake, but but there is something more burning that they, they want to be or prove something uh, to themselves uh, in so doing. But if it doesn't work out, they can go back to what they have been doing, and and they also know like you know that's an okay outcome. It's a great, interesting, I think provocative list. I want to jump ahead and talk about high, high school guidance. Um, well, it just it strikes me that the biggest gap that we face in high school, we all talk about the achievement gap, but I think it's the guidance gap. It's the who has thoughtful adults walking alongside them at, at home and at school, helping them make good choices. I guess what I had not thought about until your book was that the, 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 that those guidance relationships really ought to get at this job to be done, right? They ought to understand the context variables that, that you've uncovered and incorporate that into, uh, into the pathways that young people are introduced to in high school and ultimately the post-secondary choices. So uh, have you thought about how to help high school advisors and guidance counselors understand the, this job to be on framework? Yeah, so 100% agree with your framing. I think uh, we haven't yet you know, figured out how to crack that conversation yet. I think a miss in the book is that we, it occurred to me before the book went to press that we ought to write something to counselors and that uh, not just counselors, frankly, all of high school educators, because they have to be much more purposeful about building in opportunities for students to have experiential learning where they really immerse themselves in a variety of experiences to start to learn who I am, I like more of this, less of that, right? Build passion and so forth. And the unfortunate byproduct of a lot of uh, some of the ed reforms over recent years, you know, focused on test scores has been a narrowing of the curriculum and, and sort of an elimination of, of some of those opportunities in, in many schools. And I'm, I, I frankly will say this is a place where I've come around. I, I think I discounted some of those experiential learning opportunities and the necessity of them early on uh, in a lot of my work. And I've come to believe that they're incredibly important and that we've got to provide these opportunities. And so high school has got to be more built and tailored around that first and foremost. And then second to your point, I think if guidance counselors could actually, and teachers, frankly, as well, could understand the markers, if you will, of the job, you know, if it, gee, based on what the student is doing and prioritizing in their lives, it seems like the, the progress that they're trying to make. Therefore, you know, this set of recommendations, right? Um, we could we could help make much better upfront recommendations and not leave the college choosing process to luck in effect. Uh, and so I, I think that's a conversation, frankly, I'm hoping that we can spend more time on uh, in our writing and research over the next couple of years. But I also hope, frankly, like people like you and others out there who are writing and thinking about this stuff will take the framework and build on it to uh, unearth these these thoughts and observations that, that counselors and educators ought to be considering. And even so far as saying, like, how do you actually help students understand the jobs to be done framework? so that they can be constantly assessing what's the progress I'm trying to make in this circumstance and at sort of having that metacognition, if you will, about where am I and what am I trying to go toward, I think would be tremendously valuable if we could build that in as a, as a muscle or skill set in students 
certainly in high school, but maybe even earlier in, in, in middle and elementary school. Yeah, I want to acknowledge, we, we've corresponded about this, Michael. I, I want to acknowledge that the interesting parallel path here that our future of work investigation has really brought us back to the idea that high school fundamentally, not just in guidance, but in its its core experiences has to be about helping young people understand who they are and what they're good at and what they care about. And that those observations ought to be incorporated into this path forward, both the experiences they have in high school and what they do after high school. And so yeah, and we you just you wrote about it. Yeah, and you wrote about it also. I mean, some of your writings made its way into the book. Um, be, like the the district you profiled outside of San Diego. I'm blanking yeah. on the name right now. Cajon but Valley. that uh, yeah, right. That that exposes students in very intentional ways to a variety of pathways. You know, my colleague Julia uh, Freeland Fisher with her book Who You Know. What I realized in reading her book was I had never, I don't think, met an engineer. <laughs> until like junior or senior year of college. And I didn't know that that pathway even existed. Like I just didn't know what it mean, meant. Uh, and, and it's such a miss when we don't intentionally curate and give people opportunities. And it's not like, I think a lot of the guided pathway stuff at community colleges right now is like, you know, one or two lectures on this career pathway. And then you say, is it for me or not? That's just not good enough. We, we need a real exposure and immersion in it to, to get a sense of, do I like the work and, and am I capable of doing the things that I need to do to be able to uh, get into the line of work, right? So, it, you know, the easy one to see that is you may love uh, the idea of being a doctor. If you can't pass organic chemistry, it, it's going to be a problem, right? And so understanding not just do I love the work, but what are the pathways into it? And, and if it's not the right pathway for you, then stepping back and saying, okay, what is it about being a doctor that actually appeals to you and sort of breaking down that job, right, to, to its different component parts and saying, okay, what are five things, other pathways that might be like it that, that, would, that would excite you all the way through uh, and doing a much more intentional job of that. I, I've been struck. So the other criticism of the book that's come out early on is I've been struck by the number of people who've sort of said, well, that's great for upper and middle income students to be able to think about passion and purpose, but low income people, like they just got to survive and like get to college and, and, and so forth. I've just been struck by how many people sort of discount the building of passion and purpose in low income communities. And it, it just seems so wrong to me and short sighted because the outcomes don't work unless you build that. And so I, I, I love your thoughts, frankly, on this, but it seems like a, there's a big blind spot right now in the education conversation on this question. Our, uh, the new book that we're working on is really wrestling with this. And the core focus is that high school ought to help people understand their sense of purpose. But I, I guess the way that we've dealt with it is that our book is not just follow your passion. It's um, make a contribution. And that focus on contribution can incorporate your the context variables that say, I just need to get a job to support my family. Um, we think there are still really positive ways to help young people get on that track of, I need to get a good job to support my family and do it in a way that has a, a service mindset 
um, one that can incorporate or grow into a sense of purpose. Um, but I, I would say that we're really wrestling with these equity issues. And for me, who's spent 30 years arguing that every kid ought to have a, a fair shot at college and uh, and the American dream, I, I want to be really, really careful when I uncouple and stop advocating for the all kids um, and college that it's it's with an equity first lens. Uh, all of that said to say this is, it's very tricky. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, right, if we didn't have bias we in society, we wouldn't worry about some of these things, but we know we do. And so the question is, how do you, uh, I think, create a system where all students are uh, aware of and exposed to the pathways and then can choose the right one for them without that, without others sort of predetermining that. And, and I agree it's a tricky. It, it's, it's really tricky. I, I had the sense that if we were better at personalizing learning in a much more mastery based system in the K eight years, that by the time you got to high school, you could do a lot more exploration. Uh, and that would potentially allow you to, um, you know, sort of work your way around it because students, all, all students, not just some students, but all students would actually be getting lots of exposure and lots of reps through through a variety of pathways. And 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 I liked your way of saying it, how they can contribute to society. And uh, and then that might become systematic as opposed to, well, just for the kids. But, right. but it's a lot more. I think part of it, but part of it is also we're in the middle of a, sort of a 50 year shift from a go to school, go to work mentality to lifelong learning, right? And understanding that most human beings after the age of 16 will be on a earn and learn ladder of some sort. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. And none of us full, none of us fully understand that. And we, we haven't, fully adopted our public policy systems to incorporate that new view of life. But that's what life will be like for our kids and our grandkids. Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, some reporters have snarkily asked, uh, are you saving for college for your daughters, my daughters? Um, and my answer is yes, for two reasons. One, I don't know what they will pick, right? And I don't know what the cost will be of that. And I want them to have options is the more is, is the I, I don't necessarily want them to go to a certain college. I want them to have options is the point and the, and the ability to choose for them. The second thing is because of what you were just saying around the earn and learn and uh, lifelong learning, not just sort of casually, but but in informal and formal settings interspersed with your career in life, that is almost certainly going to be the future over the net of someone's life, the cost of education may, may actually be quite similar to what it right now is for an episodic four-year period. Uh, and so to be able to prepare someone to be able to have that uh, th those dollars in cushion, if you will, I think is still going to make a heck of a lot of sense, even if it's not spent at one time, if that makes sense. Uh, I think the most provocative education book of 2018 was Ryan Craig's book called A New You. In it, he, he said two things. He said, if if you get a free ride to a great selective school or if your family can afford it, go for it. For everybody else, 
a hard sprint to a good first job makes the most sense. Uh, what what do you like? Where do you push back against uh, Ryan Craig's supposition? Yeah. So I, when I blurbed his book, I said it was the book I wish I had had the courage to write. But the uh, I I I buy large parts of that. My only hesitation, I think, is that college is not just sort of the knowledge you get to be able to enter a job, but all the, the social capital that you accrue to get into a certain job. And Frank Bruni, I think, did a good job in his 2014 book, I think, uh, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, showing that for many students going to, quote unquote, not the na- name brand college, if you work hard, apply yourself and meet the right people, can produce great outcomes. And so I, I think in some ways, uh, in certain regions, certain parts of society, the local colleges still have a strong str- or a stranglehold right on those relationships and, and networks. And so in some cases, it still might be a really good choice for you uh, if you go there and apply yourself and, and come out the other side. And, and we certainly saw that in our research too, was that plenty of students who didn't go to name brand schools did great because they came in with a sense of purpose and were able to drive through it uh, very clearly. So that's my only hesitation with, with, with what he's saying. The, but I think the point is right, which is we need to be thinking much more about value in this equation, right? And what is value for you as a student can only be defined in the context of why you're going and, and the job to be done. And it's not an absolute, we often, and I'm guilty of this as, as well, in education, we often talk about quality as sort of an absolute and don't acknowledge that it changes based on someone's situation and, and the objective they have at that point Two in front of them. examples that I think the new competitor in higher ed, if you're president of Schlepko State, the new competitor is not state university, it's the tech company down the street. So last week, I uh, flew to Phoenix for the grand opening of the Infosys Tech Hub. Uh, Infosys is probably the biggest tech trainer in the world. Uh, They developed a great facility for hiring young people in India and putting them through a finishing school. Uh, And they brought that to America where they've already hired 10,000 people. They, They go to second tier cities and they partner with community colleges they hire young people and put them through a long finishing school that gives them tech and team skills. I think that is part of what Ryan Craig is talking about. It's a new pathway to a great job. It's a sponsored version of higher education. It's quite specific to a job path. It's very dynamic, um, high degree of value. I, I think these new sort of tech pathways that are provided by employers might be what kills a lot of second and third tier colleges. Do you buy that? I 100% agree. Yeah, I, I buy it. I mean, you know, I'm on the record, obviously, saying 25% of schools will close or merge in the next 20 years. The uh, and, and I think a large part of that is business models are breaking and uh, demographics are, uh, you know, going against them. But the third part of it is these, uh, as Ryan Craig would say, faster and cheaper pathways into a first job. And 
it's, it's more what you were just saying, these emergent pathways that will have very clear posting signs, if you will, for students that, you know, if Infosys is doing the training, <laughs> you know that there's an employer behind it that is excited and ready to hire. And uh, that sort of, that will be the brand, if you will, that uh, upsets a lot of these uh, post-secondary providers. And it's, I think a lot of people have said, oh, Michael and Clay are just talking about online learning and disruptive innovation and so forth. I, I, I think that's sort of a mischaracterization of it. It's, it's these college alternatives that are emerging. That's sort of the third rail that will upend a lot of these uh, smaller places you never heard of. Here's, a, here's another example. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Dallas, interviewed uh, Dr. Inahosa, the superintendent. Dallas itself, DSISD, has 25 P-TECH high schools. So these are high schools where you can earn an associate degree, get high-tech work experience, and a job offer from one of the tech companies in Dallas. That is, that's a remarkable development just in one city that I think is uh, a signal that the higher ed landscape is going to change a lot in the 2020s. Yeah, and it does a great job also of something that I know we've talked about in the past, but the blurring of lines between what is high school and what is college, right? These arbitrary markers that were created uh, well over a century ago uh, for very different reasons in a, in a system that was built to sort students into various pathways. Uh, those sorts of uh, innovations start to blur those lines in really interesting ways and beg the question, what is high school, what is college, what is career, right? And I, I think that's a really healthy thing because I think these arbitrary uh, structures don't hold the same meaning in today's society that they used to do. And it's not like we're going to beat them up in a top-down way, but sort of that organic innovation on the ground. I think over time, you know, 50 years from now, we'll look back and say, oh, whoa, like we don't have uh, high school and then cut college cut in the same way that we used to. Uh, we're running long, but I'm having so much fun. I, do you have a few minutes to do a quick lightning round? Let's do a lightning round. Let's do it. All right. Why didn't online learning transform secondary education? Yes. Yeah, so uh, can I just give two seconds of context? This disrupting class uh, said uh, by 2019, 50% of all high school courses would be delivered online in some form or fashion. We didn't have the language for blended learning at the time, but we clearly believed that it would mostly be. Yeah, schools, they're so mostly blended now, so that's more than fifty yeah. percent. I think we hit that, right? But I think it, we but hit it hasn't that. been very transformative, right? right? But that, that, that's the point, right? Which is the miss, and I think it's because we under or you and I have been pushing on this for ages. Right. With, with, uh, like assessments, still the, the system of assessment still stinks. Uh, the way we measure. Uh, outcomes in K-12 schools still stinks. We're looking at arbitrary proficiency metrics rather than individual growth. Even people's understanding of growth still stinks. Um, and on top of that, like our training of leaders, our building of buildings has not done the things that we need to, un, uh, to unstick us from the factory model education system. So we have the digital learning, but it has conformed itself to the system as opposed to the system evolving. Why hasn't uh, blended learning completely transformed K-8 education? Yeah, I mean, I think same yeah. sets of reasons, right? Uh, the one thing I, I would say that I'm, I'm sort of most disappointed at is it feels to me like every math class, at least, right, in K-3 through math, if they just 
went to a simple station rotation with ST math and like a, a, a Dreambox or uh, uh, Zern or you know one of these relatively proven providers at this point, you for at least eighty percent of kids that would be a better math uh, education for them. Um, and my my disappointment is just that we haven't seen. Uh, while there's a ton of blended learning going on at that level, it, it, I, I think we've sort of underinvested in just the operations of making that simple thing work. Um, why isn't competency-based learning transformed K-12 yet? Yeah, I mean, frankly, I think uh, we haven't done the hard work of, of creating the systems to allow it. And, and policy change is not, it, like just having a seat time waiver is not enough. It's much more about the funding and assessment uh, infrastructures that we've paid attention to. And, and I think business models are fundamentally predicated on how you pay for something. And right now we pay for, for uh, you know, average daily attendance. We need to be paying for average uh, uh, daily progress instead. And that would reorient the system radically. Will AR and VR be a, a big part of the education and training landscape in 2025? I think in certain applications, yes, but I'm not as big a AR, VR sort of, um, I, I'm not as big on the hype there, I think. Uh, I would like to see AR and VR much more heavily used in terms of uh, robust simulations uh, to change how we train doctors and nurses and, and people on the front line so that they could have an actual uh, set of practical experiences where they actually confront every scenario or, you know, uh, 80% of the scenarios that they might see before they start going into residency so that residency and things like that become less time-based and more mastery-based. Uh, and I think AR VR can be incredibly uh, valuable in that if the regulators would, uh, you know, would embrace it more in state boards and things like that. It, it, but it's really going to take a, a, a work at the state board level to allow a much more robust use of it. I, I don't know. You probably have stronger views on this than, than I do. I, I think I, I feel like the jury's still out on on how deep it'll go uh, in our education system. Will everyone have a blockchain profile in 2025? This is definitely your area more than mine. Um, the I, my, my sense is that's going to be slower moving than people think, uh, because even though privacy has become an issue for a certain percentage of people, I think people... Uh, in education don't have a clear sense of blockchain yet and and what it actually is doing outside of sort of an association with Bitcoin, which, you know, is a manifestation of using blockchain, but it's not blockchain. And uh, so I think it's going to take longer than that is my instinct. What percentage of high schools will not be organized around time-based courses in, let's say, 2025? Yeah. What percentage will not? Or, uh, better better said, it, like what percentage of high schools will be structured in in a new way, not around, not entirely around courses and credits. Yeah. I think, you know, 10 to 20% maybe uh, is sort of my instinct. I, I, I guess my takeaway from, you know, disrupting class was like, we wrote about all these pieces and we didn't get some of them right, but it's, it's just, you know, the technology piece, the disruption piece, if you will, that just moves. <laughs> And then all these policy things that you got to do because it's a public system just take a heck of a lot longer to get the adults out of the way, uh, if you will. Well, we've, we also, as you acknowledge, we have a set of invention problems. We have to invent new ways to manage 
these blended competency-based models to capture and communicate learning, to pay, uh, you have to reinvent school finance. So there, there's both technology and policy invention challenges here. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think I can only find about a dozen schools around the country that are really architectured in novel ways, not using time-based courses. I hope it's uh, uh, 10 or 20% by 2025, but we, we have work to do. We'll yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I should say, I'm, I'm, I, even as I'm t- thinking it through, I agree with everything you just said, and I'm, I, I remain skeptical, I guess. So that's, pro- that's a very high-end estimate. I, yeah. let's, let's say that's the best hope. But the right. part of our challenge also is there are lots of smart people working on saying, say, restructuring the school finance, and they don't understand this larger landscape, this systematic landscape we're having this conversation about right now. So they're doing it in a silo separated from this conversation. And those silos need to be unified so that we're having this more deep thought as we reinvent these systems. Because once you reinvent school finance in one state, it, it takes you know 15 years for you to revisit it. And so those are your political cycles. Uh, you just don't get enough reps at the fast iteration you need for robust innovation. As a result, you, you know, I, one of my big frustrations was when Angela Duckworth came out with her book about grit and perseverance uh, that needs to be intricately tied into this competency-based or mastery-based conversation because you literally can't build grit in people unless you have a system that says you keep working at something until you master it, which is the opposite of our time-based system today. And, and for those conversations to be occurring in parallel as opposed to integrated is just a huge miss. Will there be a, a larger percentage of colleges or maybe more broadly post-secondary options that are that are competency-based by 2025? I think there will be more than the K-12 um, system just because of the employer linkages you just laid out uh, and, and the rise of portfolios, at least in tech jobs, being taken more seriously uh, as a way to get employment that are apart from sort of a bubble multiple choice test. Yeah, I think just the rise of boot camps, corporate options, corporate influenced options, um, as you and Clay would have said, it, around the edges in post-sec is where we're going to see rapid growth of these new personalized competency-based structures. Yep, I think that's exactly right. And, and the more you link it to employers, you know, here's the other thing we haven't said. Employers have to do a much better job in turn of identifying the actual competencies that they need at, at the heart of their roles. And until they do that, uh, that will actually trap the post-secondary system a little bit. Uh, Michael Horn, what a treat to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks for joining us. Tom, thanks a million, and I hope we can have these conversations uh, more often than we already do. A big thanks to Michael for joining us for today's episode. We appreciate his thoughtful analysis of the complex college landscape. For more on higher education, make sure you listen to episode 215 with Paul LeBlanc and Connie Yowell from Southern New Hampshire University. They talk about how they're extending access to higher ed from Chicago to Rwanda. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. Okay, lastly, before you go, make sure you leave us a rating and hit subscribe if you're not already. You'll get our episodes as soon as they drop on Wednesday mornings, and you won't want to miss some of our upcoming interviews. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off. Jessica signing off.